Michael Yao. Hi, I'm Kelly Skagg. You're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Alright, let's roll. Let's go. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to episode 67 of ADA Live. Hi, everybody. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director of the Southeast ADA Center. Uh, Before we move on, listening audience, uh, let me remind you, you can submit your questions about the ADA and opioid addiction at any time at adalive.org. That's adalive.org. Every day, more than 130 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids. When you think about it, that is 47,500 people annually dying from, from opioid overdose. The misuse of and addiction to opioids, including pain relievers, heroin, synthetic opioids like fentanyl, It's a serious national crisis that affects public health as well as social and economic welfare. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimates the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78.5 billion each year, including the cost of healthcare, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. Over the next two episodes, ADA Live will explore the opioid crisis from a number of different angles, from treatment to the protections offered by the ADA, from the justice system to legal and responsible use of opioids to treat chronic pain. There are several different different approaches to management and treatment of opioid addiction, and, and what may be effective for one person may not work for another. Common treatment options may include medicines, counseling and behavioral therapies, medication-assisted therapy, residential and hospital-based programs. Today, we feature Mike Yao. He's the president and CEO, and Kelly Skaggs, the clinical director of Fellowship Hall Drug and Alcohol Recovery Center based in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mike and Kelly will discuss the treatment approaches used at Fellowship Hall, utilizing the Narcotics Anonymous principles and steps. We'll also be joined by Becky Williams, the Technical Information Specialist here at the Southeast ADA Center, to discuss the protections people in treatment have under the ADA. So, Mike and Kelly, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's our pleasure. We're glad to be here. Right. Perhaps a good place to start um, might be to share what Fellowship Hall is and what kind of treatment model you use there. Fellowship Hall is a uh, private nonprofit. Uh, we've been here since December 1971. So, um, you know, we, we've been around for a long time and um, we're proud of that and we hope to have another 47 years or longer. At our core, our philosophy of treatment is an abstinence-based 12-step philosophy. Our experience has been, and we, we think that people do best in the long term, if you have an, a substance abuse disorder, that in the long term you're not taking substances and that you'll you know, align yourself with self-help mutual aid societies like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And so those are our 
our core principles are our guiding principles, and it's, we believe that works best for most. But really, our treatment process is much, much bigger than just aligning people with uh, AA or NA. You know, we have a, a holistic approach to treatment. Uh, we're using uh, evidence-based practices, and Kelly will talk more about that across the board. Uh, we offer, we have what we call as a recovery-oriented system of care on our campus. So we offer everything from medically supervised detox all the way to long-term housing and traditional outpatient treatment. In my experience, and I've been doing this for over 30 years, and Kelly's knocking on the door that number as well, what we've seen is that people who have an addiction disease, their outcome's typically gonna be better if they're not taking addictive substances in the long term. Helping people get there, there's a lot of very pathways to recovery, and we try to support a, a lot of different pathways of people. We try to cooperate with a lot of different pathways to recovery, and people who come here are looking specifically, we hope, for what it is that we're offering. Great, thank you so much. So when someone comes to Fellowship Hall, can you maybe walk us through what happens when somebody first arrives? Here at Fellowship Hall, we offer a full continuum of care. So people can enter at different levels of care depending on the severity of their substance use disorder. The majority of people who come enter a traditional residential type setting that people are familiar with as 28-day treatment. When they come in, they can be, depending on where, how sick they are, where they are in their substance use, they may require medical detox. So we're a full hospital, so they can come in and receive medical detox here in our facility. While they're detoxing, they are uh, participating in the programming that we have. So they are going to therapy groups, they're going to uh, lectures, psychoeducational groups, the whole time focus on how we can build their coping skills, help them to live a substance-free life, as Mike mentioned earlier, and help them work on any core issues or deep-seated issues that may be um, exacerbating or adding to their addiction issues. So along those lines, so when someone's admitted, strong process of getting someone admitted into the hospital. So there's an admissions department that is contacted initially by someone who's seeking treatment, whether that be a referral source, whether that be a family member, whether that be a patient themselves. And, and uh, by tradition, we call our patients guests because our founders thought it was our privilege to have people here. And so we refer to our patients as guests. Sometimes a guest makes a call. Um, there's a, a lot of information, demographics, and history gathered at admission. Once a person gets here, they're, they're seen by a nurse for a full nursing assessment. Within 24 hours, they're given a full health and physical. Uh, a med our medical director is board-certified psychiatrist and board-certified in addiction medicine. We have a family practitioner, MD, on staff who addresses a lot of medical concerns. We have a PA on staff who is uh, uh, psychiatrically trained as well as handles a lot of the medical issues. And we're staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week by a team of some 35-odd nurses and uh, some LPNs. And so it's a robust assessment process with a lot of wraparound services around medical needs for people that I think people are surprised by when they come here. And then what Kelly said, that um, when people get here, they're, they're asked to participate. So one of the admission criteria is that you're ambulatory. The reality is we get a lot of people in here who are very, very sick from their uh, substance abuse disorders. And it's not unusual for us to be treating someone's medical issues right along with their with their substance abuse issues 
as far as out-of-control diabetes, uh, out-of-control hypertension, other medical issues that come along with an out-of-control substance abuse disorder. So it's a robust process, and I think people are, are surprised happily to receive the level of service they receive when they, when they get here. That, that's interesting, Mike. So, so there are, you know, there are these complicating medical issues that you're trying to balance at the same time with address, addressing the addiction issue. Exactly. Uh, like a, sometimes someone will come in after using, let's say, large amounts of alcohol or benzodiazepines. They walk in fairly well, but sometimes within 12 or 24 hours of remission, you know, they really start to crash. And so people have to be in bed. They, they may require a wheelchair for, for two to four days, three to five days. And if someone um, has some um, complicated issues during their withdrawal, we have to refer them out to a local hospital to, for stabilization, like for like we don't do IV therapy here. So if someone's it's not unusual for someone who's been drinking a lot to be very dehydrated and may need some IV fluids for 12 or 24 hours. And so we send people to the hospital and they, they come back and complete their treatment. But we, we see people who are very sick sometimes from as a result of substance abuse disorders and who have not been taking care of their general health because of their substance abuse use. Right. So, um, so they, you, you have to address all of that in order to get someone able to participate in the treatment process, which... We'll talk about it a little bit more as far as opiate uh, treatment is concerned. So that's a good segue. And Kelly had mentioned the continuum of care at Fellowship Hall. What does a typical day look like, presuming, you know, once you're able and you're, you're participating in the program, what's a typical day like for a guest? One nice thing here at Fellowship Hall is that we have a fantastic dietary department. So they begin their day with full breakfast. They're usually up getting their medications, getting blood pressures checked, they have their breakfast, and then we begin the programming day with what we call eye-opener, which is a gathering of the entire guest community. We go over any community issues, any announcements that all the guests need to hear. It's how they start their day. We have a morning reading for them from some of the AA or NA texts. That's followed by psychoeducational groups, lectures. We have specialty tracks. For instance, we have a young adults track for those guests who are age 18 to 25 that addresses issues specific to that population. We have a specialty track for professionals. So if someone is in a safety sensitive type position, pilot, physician, nurse, um, if someone works as a lawyer, they may participate in in that particular specialty track, if they're working with a professional monitoring organization, people who have chronic relapse histories, there's a specialty track. Those who've been using stimulant type substances, cocaine, methamphetamine, they have a specialty track. Guests are participating all day long in education to help them build the skills they're going to need to support their recovery system. They also go to small group which is traditional group therapy, and they attend that six days a week. They also meet with the individual therapist. It's something unique about Fellowship Hall is each guest who comes here is assigned a primary counselor. That's their individual therapist for their entire stay here at Fellowship Hall. They meet with that person at least twice a week for a full 50-minute session where they can address their individual issues as well. They'll be working on their aftercare plan because everybody who comes to Fellowship Hall leaves with an aftercare plan. It may be continuation of services here at Fellowship Hall. It may be in their home community if they don't live in our particular area. But we have a 
clinician who does their discharge planning. There's an entire team approach to the work that's done with each of the guests here. That involves our medical team and our clinical team as well. And so the guest day is pretty full. They participate in activities. They attend outside 12-step meetings in the evenings. So they have a very full day here at Fellowship Hall where they have an opportunity to really dive into those issues that are going to be important as they move forward in their recovery process. It's, it's just to uh, piggyback on what Kelly's laid out, so, so as, as Kelly said, you know, this is, that's a constant effort for us not to offer the treatment du jour, so to speak, but to offer treatment that's evidence-based and gives people what they need as individuals. So individualizing people's treatment has been crucial for us, as I think it has been for the industry of those people who are interested in doing that, that work. I also want to add, as Kelly stated, one of the things that we're proud of is our continued individualized care. So where some programs have gotten away from doing individual therapy, but we've continued that individual counseling piece people are, you know, benefit from. So you get that individual counseling in addition to the group processes. One thing that I think is very important part of our program here at Fellowship Hall is our family program. We offer an intensive four-day family program. So when someone is in involved in treatment here at Fellowship Hall, their family, at least one family member, and oftentimes more, are invited to come for the four-day family program where the family member is also receiving education on substance use disorder and recovery and what recovery means for them because substance use doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so family members are impacted significantly when somebody they love suffers with substance use disorder. And so we think it's important for them to have support and a pathway to recovery for themselves in this process. And it's beneficial for our guests as well. We found our family program has been around almost as long as the hall has been around. And we find that guests who have someone participate in that family program have much better outcomes because we know with treating the family system, the, the whole system has much better results for everyone involved. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. And that's the remark I was going to make a second ago is that it sounds like Fellowship Hall just has a, a very much a global approach to treatment. And it, it seems very individualized. It seems that the mix of therapies, both individual and group, are there. And then I'm really encouraged by what you just said, Kelly, with family aspect, because you're right. You know, addiction is not in a vacuum and, and it, it affects the entire family and other people, you know, friendships and, and work relationships. So Fellowship Hall, you mentioned there's a primary treatment and an extended treatment. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two of those? The, the primary is the 28-day residential. There's also an extended treatment. So our extended treatment program was designed to allow people who wanted to do more intensive work the opportunity to do that. Mike was actually part of the creation of that program back in 2011. The guests who attend our extended treatment program typically do their first 28 days in primary. And then the remaining 62 days take place at the Extended Treatment Lodge, which is also on our campus. We're fortunate that all of our programs, our intensive outpatient, our traditional outpatient services, primary treatment extended, structured sober living, all happen on our 120-acre campus, which is nice. So they transition from primary treatment into the Extended Treatment Program. 
where they have the opportunity to work on some of the core issues that continue to be obstacles to people in their recovery process. Oftentimes it's individuals who have maybe had some recovery time and are struggling to maintain that. They have chronic relapses, maybe people struggling with um, childhood trauma issues or other issues that have come up for them um, in their process of their addiction, which are um, could potentially be or have been obstacles to them in their recovery. It gives them an opportunity to start looking more deeply at the core issues, utilizing different techniques than they may be able to um, take advantage of in a primary program. For instance, we do a lot of what's referred to as experiential work. So they have the opportunity to do some psychodramas down there. They um, have the opportunity, they're doing yoga three mornings a week. They are engaging in music therapy. They have some art therapy that they do, as well as intensive group therapy each and every day. And they also are doing work with an individual therapist down in the extended program as well. So is an augmentation to what they're doing in primary. It gives them more time uh, to dig deeper into the issues that are challenging them. And to that end, um, you know, the, the, the extended program here has been a, a great addition to our staffing, uh, uh, to our program uh, offerings. Uh, healthcare professionals, people who are mandated 90 days of treatment, I mean, they have, they participate in that. You know, the gold standard of treatment by, from NIDA is 90 days worth of treatment. And to that end, you know, we're all very well aware that the proverbial 28 days in treatment is, is not nearly enough for people. And so, uh, as I said, through the years, as we've expanded our treatment processes, you know, we have a lot of people who come to the inpatient setting and then they continue with us for an in intensive outpatient. So intensive outpatient is another eight weeks of treatment. So even if someone doesn't go to extended, if they're in our catchment area or they remain in the area, they go to intensive outpatient, which is another eight weeks. And we also have transitional housing uh, on the um, grounds. So we've got three short-term houses, one for women, two for men, with 18 beds currently. And those folks, by design, participate in the intensive outpatient treatment. So those folks are also really getting the 90-day treatment process as well. And of course, you know, the success for those folks is, is better than someone who just comes to any inpatient facility for three or four weeks, because the longer you can hold someone, the better. We also have a long-term house for men, um, and uh, hopefully within the next month or so, we'll have a long-term house for women, which are five beds apiece for three months to up to a year, year and a half. We also offer an aftercare group for people for up to two years in the area. Once they complete their full treatment processes, they can continue to come to a group for once a week. And in the, our traditional outpatient settings, people can complete their treatment processes and continue to see an individual counselor here and to see our physicians for med management for, for medications that may be on to, to treat depressions or, or anxiety issues because we treat a lot of core current disorders as well. So through the years, we've tried to build some more wraparound services for extending people's treatment processes rather than just having someone come in here for 28 days and saying, you know, good luck to you. One thing right, that so, we right. know, and I think most people are, are in the professionals in the field are clear on, maybe not as much consumers, is that it's not a quick fix when you're talking about addictions of any kind. It's a lifelong process, and we often compare it to treating other lifelong chronic diseases that need management. 
And so that early recovery group that Mike mentioned that guests can attend for up to two years after they've completed an inpatient treatment process or an intensive outpatient process is really important because that connection and having that support is crucial for people on their journey, their recovery journey, to have those supports in place. And we are proud of the fact that once someone has participated in treatment here, they can stay connected and continue to receive support for as long as they need. And if I, if I can add one more thing, not to belabor the point, but I think one thing we're doing, and I think a lot of places who are concerned about people's welfare, is what Kelly mentioned. We have an individualized process around discharge planning. So we have a continuing care coordinator, and that's his job. So everyone who leaves treatment here, if they don't, if they're not within our catchment area, in other words, a 45-minute or an hour drive of of, the, of our campus. Everyone leaves here with at least two or three individualized appointments for ongoing intensive outpatient in their area, sometimes individual counseling, and any medical needs they might have. So our nursing staff is involved in that as well. So people leave here with referrals to family doctors or referrals to psychiatrists in the area to continue their process. And our message is very clear to our guests here. When you leave here, it's not over. It's really just a start on dealing with a health issue that you have got to attend to. And um, so we want to, again, give everybody uh, an opportunity for as much success as they can have by setting them up with appointments in their own home areas when they leave here. And, and, and that's a vital part of what our, we believe our mission is. That's interesting. Thank you, Mike. Mike and Kelly, uh, I want to stop for a minute and I want to bring in Becky Williams into our conversation and ask, Rebecca, what protections does the ADA provide for people who are experiencing opioid addiction? Uh, sure, Barry, I'd be glad to answer that, but I do want to thank uh, you and Mike and Kelly for uh, inviting me to be a part of this great and timely webinar. Uh, since we are discussing opioid addiction and treatment, I'm going to frame my answer around treatment services. Substance abuse treatment facilities fall under Title III of the ADA, ADA which is also known as Places of Public Accommodation or Places of Commerce. Uh, places of commerce are basically places where we spend money and receive goods or services. The regulations for Title III of the ADA state that public accommodations may not impose eligibility criteria that either screen out or tend to screen out persons with disabilities from fully and, and, and equally enjoying whatever goods or services is offered by the business unless it can show that such requirements are necessary. The Department of Justice has recently ruled in several cases involving substance abuse treatment facilities that refusal to admit and or treat someone with opioid use disorder is a discriminatory eligibility criteria under Title III of the ADA, and individuals with opioid use disorder must be able to receive the same services from treatment facilities as all others. That's interesting. Th thanks, Becky. So, so are there circumstances where people might not have protection? Um, I'm glad you asked that, Barry. There is so much misinformation being circulated uh, regarding drug abuse and ADA protections. First, however, I want listeners to understand who is protected under the ADA. The ADA defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, 
which also include the operation of major bodily functions. Opioid use disorder can substantially limit major life activities such as caring for oneself, learning, concentrating, thinking, communicating, as well as limiting the operation of some major bodily functions such as neurological and brain functions. In order for an individual's drug addiction to be considered a disability under the ADA, it would have to pose a substantial limitation in one or more of these major life activities. Now, under the ADA, the term individual with a disability does not include an individual who is currently engaging in the, the illegal use of drugs. So folks who are taking prescription opioids without being under the care of a physician do not have ADA protections. And in fact, anyone who is using illegal drugs is not protected under the ADA. In addition, someone who might buy opioids from a friend who has a legal prescription, that doesn't transfer protections to anyone. Under the ADA, it is considered to be a legal use of prescription medication to take somebody else's prescribed drugs. Now keep in mind, this exclusion does not apply to individuals who are no longer using illegal drugs, who have successfully completed drug rehabilitation, or are participating in a supervised rehabilitation program, or may be erroneously regarded as using illegal drugs. I understand, thanks. Um, anything else you need to tell our listeners about, about their rights under the ADA when they uh, enroll in a drug or alcohol treatment program, Rebecca? Absolutely. I think one important fact for folks to understand is that individuals who are participating in a medication-assisted treatment program for opioid use disorder or any drug or alcohol treatment program do not need to disclose this to their employer or prospective employer until such time that they may need to request an accommodation uh, to either participate in the treatment program or to help them perform the essential functions of their job. Now on the flip side, if an applicant or employee tests positive for narcotics or controlled substances, an employer can ask whether he or she is using any prescription medications under a doctor's care that may have caused that positive result. And Barry, I believe ADA Live will be covering uh, the ADA employment and opioid use disorder uh, more in depth in a future episode. Yes, that's right. Our, our next episode will include uh, people from the Department of Justice. So thank you, Rebecca. Uh, one, one other question, however, before we turn back to, to Mike and Kelly. So what, what protection does the ADA provide for people experiencing opioid addiction? Well, again, if... If somebody with opioid addiction is currently in a treatment program, they cannot be discriminated against if we're looking at employment in all aspects in employment. So from interviewing, hiring, uh, the actual employment, promotion, training, because at that point, the individual is no longer using drugs illegally. They are in a treatment program. Right. Not, right. Does that answer it for yes. you? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so ADA Live listening, thank you, Rebecca. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about any ADA topic or the Fellowship Hall Drug and Alcohol Recovery Center and their role in addressing the opioid crisis, please submit your questions anytime online at adalive.org. Let's take a quick break. 
Fellowship Hall, located in Greensboro, North Carolina, began as the dream of four recovering alcoholic businessmen who wanted to help others suffering from the disease of alcoholism. Fellowship Hall is a private, not-for-profit facility treating adult men and women since 1971. Fellowship Hall's treatment program focuses on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Their original program expanded to serve those suffering from drug addiction, utilizing the Narcotics Anonymous principles and steps. Fellowship Hall offers a range of care to meet individuals where they are in the progression of their addiction disease. You can find out more about Fellowship Hall by visiting www.fellowshiphall.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're speaking with Mike Yao, President and CEO of Fellowship Hall, and Kelly Skeggs, their Clinical Director, uh, as well as Becky Williams from our own staff here at the Southeast ADA Center. Here's a question that I've always been curious about. Are, are there people that would be at a higher risk of becoming addicted than other people? I think the short answer is yes. Now, so that's, it's a loaded question in some respects. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of research and plenty of evidence to support a genetic factor for people. Um, people have long histories, family systems have long histories of alcoholism or drug addiction in them. You know, we typically see people who, who, you know, continue that trend in their own life. There's a physical genetics issue, but also a lot of those folks are coming from family systems that are uh, dysfunctional. So there's a huge biopsychosocial um, element to that. So it's not so simple to say it's just pure physical genetics, although that's in play. And I think all the good research would support that. As research has continued into the, the study of substance abuse disorders, it's very clear that people who have a trauma history probably are more susceptible to, to um, drug and alcohol abuse simply because of some of the changes in their brain chemistry and their neurological function. I think the emotional, spiritual impact of, of trauma uh, sets people up for looking for ways to feel better. You know, there's a, a fair amount of evidence that people who are self-medicating psychiatric illness may turn to drugs or alcohol to feel better. And next thing you know, someone who's got a depression starts drinking. Uh, alcohol is a depressant. Uh, they may develop an a, a, a addiction to alcohol and they show up in treatment and uh, you know, what we have to do is treat their addiction disease as a primary disease function so you can stabilize their depression and or other psychiatric needs um, as needed. So I, again, I'd say the short answer is yes, there are some people who run a higher risk and become addicted and there's a lot of factors I think that will contribute to that. Um, I would agree with what Mike has said as well. And the reality is anyone taking a prescription opioid runs the risk of becoming physically dependent on that, whether they are addicted to it or not, they're going to have some withdrawal symptoms once they stop using it. Those who use it for an extended period of time, maybe it was prescribed by their doctor initially, but then they began taking it more frequently, not necessarily as prescribed. They get to the point that they're um, overusing, they're abusing it. Um, what we find is that oftentimes people have convinced themselves they need to continue taking it at those large quantities for their physical pain, when in reality, oftentimes it's emotional pain that they're numbing versus physical pain, but they've 
they're no longer able to separate those for themselves. So treatment spends a, a lot of time looking at that. How can we help people to recognize what part of it is physical pain and what's really emotional pain that they've found relief from by using these opioids? I do want to add too, just again to kind of knock down some of the the myths, if you will. We see plenty of people every day who come into treatment with stable family histories, no trauma history, who develop an addiction process. I mean, there is some there is some literature out there that has suggested that um, all addictions are trauma related, and I would push back against that notion. I, that's not been my experience. I don't think that's true. You know, I've treated enough people through the years to know that that's, that's not valid. Um, and as Kelly stated as well, you know, what we see a lot of is for folks who were on prescription meds, um, had them stop for whatever reason, and they turn to street drugs uh, to fill that gap. And next thing you know, they're, they're in a heck of a mess. And so there's, there's a lot of factors involved. And I think that's one of the things we do a good job at is, is helping people look at how they got here. And more importantly, to look on how to get out of the place they're in. Yeah, there's there seems to be a lot of lot of impact, a lot of factors that we can't simplify by pointing at one thing or another and saying that's the cause of addiction. So, so Mike and Kelly, how effective are most opioid addiction treatments? Even with your best efforts, there must be some rate of return to use or relapse. Can you talk about that a little? Again, it's, a, it's an involved conversation. So let me, let me talk a bit about what we're doing and what some statistics I'm aware of. For opiate use disorder, we do do medication-assisted treatment, or the MAT. One of the criticisms I've had about the, the industry, if you will, is that what's been lost in the conversation in some respects, and I don't mean to be ultra-critical, but MAT should not include drug replacement therapy, so to speak. They're, they're two different things. So if you're putting someone on a maintenance dose of buprenorphine and or methadone and continuing off them therapy, then that's called, that's a drug replacement therapy. And, and if that's a person's need, then I would tell you then they, they should move forward with that. The bigger umbrella is medication assisted treatment and drug replacement therapy lives under that umbrella. It's not talked about separately, I think as common as it should be. And that, that's a criticism for me. And I think a lot of other people in the field so here at Fellowship Paul, we offer a robust MAT process, and we, we use buprenorphine in the form of Subutex. It's really more effectively called a taper rather than a detox, so to speak. Um, but we are, we're able to offer a buprenorphine taper for people who need to be classically detoxed from opiate use. Opiate withdrawal is terrible. And if you talk to anybody who's been addicted to, to opiates, they'll tell you their biggest fear is being sick. And so there's the, the objective withdrawal. And one of the difficulties in treating people with opiate use disorders is the subjective withdrawal. People who have, you know, chronic complaints and, and um, they don't feel good and their body hurts, their bones ache, they feel sick, they're afraid of being sicker. And that subjective withdrawal really, I would suggest, is the cause of a lot of people returning to use with opiates because it's just difficult. So one of the things that we've gotten good at, frankly, just by paying attention, is utilizing the medication buprenorphine more effectively to manage people's objective medically needed withdrawal symptoms and their subjective withdrawal while they're in the course of an inpatient treatment process. Outpatient detox for opioid use disorder is very, very difficult. 
that's one of the problems providers are seeing that you can't really manage people's withdrawal processes because they won't stay in treatment long enough to do that, particularly in an outpatient basis. In an effort for transparency, last year, as we looked at our internal numbers, we were losing about 40% of our opiate use disorder people because of they were leaving treatment. You know, we weren't, we probably weren't supporting them long enough with buprenorphine and we were losing them. So in the past year, our medical department has done a fantastic job uh, in conjunction with our clinical department to manage people's subjective withdrawal symptoms more effectively with the use of Subutex. And we've reduced our, our loss of people from 40% to 20%, which means as we're treating those opiate use withdrawal symptoms, we're keeping people engaged in treatment long enough for them to benefit from the treatment. The other thing that we're doing as far as MAT is concerned um, is once we get someone stabilized in an inpatient environment, which is a, a, a classic way of doing that, and I think probably one of the, one of the more beneficial ways for people with opiate disorders is engaging people with the use of naltrexone or the, the injectable drug called Vivitrol. Um, and there's a lot of good research. NADA just did a, a three-year study from 2014 through 2017 showing that the, the use of Vivitrol is about equally effective to the use of Suboxone in the long term. The difficulty is getting people through a detox period so they can finally get started on the medication. We do not do drug replacement therapy here for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being really because we treat so many out-of-area patients that it, it's hard to find providers for folks in their home areas to do that. We also, what's happened for us, and, and this, and I can just speak for us, um, although I think this has happened in other areas of the country, is there's almost been a niche, if you will, that's been created by who we are and what we do, of people who come to us who have been on various levels of drug replacement and simply have not been able to comply because it's just so hard to take that Suboxone pill every day. Also, and, and if you follow the news, there's, there's a lot of bad actors and a lot of bad players in the addiction industry, which is a very sad statement. Um, there's a lot of for-profit entities, you know, uh, pill mills they're called, and you know, we've all seen the people that are getting arrested, rightfully so in my opinion. But if you're on buprenorphine, if you're on Suboxone maintenance, and you're drinking, and you're smoking pot, and you're taking crystal meth or cocaine, it's very difficult for us to say somehow that's stabilizing. And so what we've seen is people who are coming here, we admitted a young man yesterday who has been on Suboxone at, at, a, at a provider. He's taking his pills every now and then. He's diverting some of his medications and selling them. And he's continued to use the opiates. And he's came here to say, look, I, I can't do this. I've got to be off this stuff totally if I'm going to stay alive, frankly. So not by our own promotion, but just by who we are and, and what our treatment philosophy is, there are people who are seeking not to be on drug replacement to get on an MAT process of, of a taper and the Vivitrol, hopefully, and we're finding some real benefit for that population. Not to suggest that about 50% of people with opioid use disorders have a return to use. The numbers are not great, and I don't know anybody who's got numbers that are, you know, a lot better than that. The one thing I would say, and I think Kelly would support this, is you see the word success, and so. If you come to treatment here, you complete a course of treatment, let's say you do 90 days worth of treatment between inpatient and outpatient. You leave here, you're on Vivitrol, after a couple of months, you, you don't go get your last injection, you have a return to use. And if you come back to Fellowship Hall for a second treatment, I would argue all day long your initial treatment was successful 
because you got enough treatment on board to know that there was a different way for you to go and that you had enough hope to return back in the treatment um, so you don't have to continue to use until some god-awful event. I think um, Kelly and I were talking about this yesterday with, with somebody, that the, the research suggests that there's seven, what would you say, touches or attempts to quit. Yeah, they say most people have seven quit attempts before they finally enter a long-term recovery process, and that's regardless of the substance that somebody's using. And a quit attempt does not have to mean seven treatment experiences, but seven attempts to stop using before people are typically successful. And so, you know, we want to be there to support people through that process. You know, you had asked about the relapse or recidivism that comes with uh, treating opioid addiction. This is a chronic disease for people, like any chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease. Those are some that are often compared to addiction as far as their relapsing rates. You know, this is right in line with those. If you think about, you know, a diabetic who knows they need to avoid eating cookies and cake, sometimes they may have a bite of cake somewhere. You know, that's not to say that um, that's healthy for them, but, you know, with when you're treating substance use, it's not a failure, as Mike indicated, if someone has a return to use. The goal, of course, is complete abstinence, but we're realistic that this disease can have a component of relapse to it. It doesn't mean failure for somebody. What we hope when people experience that, we want to be able to be there and support people in looking at where were the missteps for them in the recovery process. What could have been done differently? What other supports need to be in place? Is it something like a medication to a system such as Vivitrol? Is it additional therapy that they need? Do they need to be attending more mutual self-help groups? You know, we want to be there to help people see where those potholes on their road to recovery happen to be. I will say this, Barry, that Kelly and I both have experienced this. We, we travel fairly extensively around the country to various conferences. And my job specifically here at the hall now is to make sure that we're offering what we think is the best treatment for people as individuals. We've been in conferences where uh, people have yelled at participants that if you're not doing drug replacement, you're practicing, you should be sued for malpractice and everybody should be on drug replacement therapy. And in the same room, someone have a position that if you're doing drug replacement therapy, you're killing folks and you shouldn't be doing that. So we're trying to avoid the extremes on either end of that argument and trying to find what we think works best in the long term for people. And if someone comes here and says, I want to be off drug replacement, I, it's too hard. And it's super difficult for people to do that. We need to support them with medication-assisted treatment to bridge them dealing with their opiate use disorder. And so, you know, it, it's, this, it's this constant effort on our part to, to do what seems to be what's most effective for people without taking a position on the either end of the argument. This is a hot topic in the industry, you know. I don't find taking an extreme position on either end of that useful. That's fascinating. Thank you both so much. I just learned so much from that that last exchange. And, you know, one thing that just resonated with me is, you know, I would imagine that, you know, if you successfully complete a, a treatment and then you have a relapse, imagine that feeling of failure must be so strong. And for you to be able to say, no, this is this is a positive because you're back now. This is a success. I think that's fantastic and aid in, in recovery. 
Well, it, and it's, you look at for us, it's valid. I mean, I've, I've talked to a huge number of people who came in here after a return to use with, you know, I let you down or I failed. And I'm, we're both very quick to tell somebody, look, the failure for me is if I see you in the newspaper in the obituaries. So if you're back in treatment, that means you've got a chance. Find out what's missing from the recipe and get this done. But as, as Kelly very said very clearly, uh, it's not a failure. It's something's missing. But again, if, if you're a diabetic and you go to the doctor and you, your diet's off, he doesn't kick you out of the door. He no. chastises you. <laughs> you know, right. He gives you a lecture. He chastises you. gets his family involved and talks to you about what you got to do to take care of yourself. And that's the approach we've really taken here on giving people ongoing support in the treatment of their substance abuse disorder um, and trying to find places for them to be. If we're not the place for them, we want to find the place where they can be. Because as I stated earlier, if we see a young person here who, let's say, has an onset of opiate use at 15, and they come in here at 21, that's a person that maybe can benefit from some drug replacement therapy for a while until their brain catches up. You know, when we, we have partners in the area that we can refer to for that, uh, for some longer-term use of, of, of buprenorphine or methadone, it's just, it depends on what people's needs are. So the services that we can provide we connect people to folks who can provide those because, again, that, that at the end of the day, that's what we're wanting to do. We want to be part of a solution for people rather than stand on this is what we believe and that's in the conversation. That's, that's insane. We're, we're not going to do that. You know? So, Mike and Kelly, we're about out of time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? I think it's important, and we've, we've talked around a little bit, the idea that when someone is struggling with opioid use, there's a lot of shame that can be associated with that, really with any substance use, but particularly with the opioids and, and guilt about the impact it may have had, as you mentioned, on family, friends, coworkers. Recognizing that individuals who struggle with substance use disorder are experiencing a tremendous amount of shame, whether people are aware of it or not, is an important piece in the recovery process because really what they need is that support. They don't need someone else tell them they're terrible or look what you're doing. I mean, we really want to be there to offer that support and help them to recognize there is a different way and there is a better life that they can lead for themselves free of chemicals. And that's really our ultimate goal is to provide that form. Our mission at Fellowship Hall is to provide effective cost savings treatment for individuals suffering with substance use. And, you know, I think based on what I'm hearing from everybody today in this broadcast that that's what we want to see is people get the help that they need and the support around that to have successful outcomes. And, and I would just piggyback on one thing real quick that was mentioned earlier. So here in North Carolina, uh, late last year, there was an act called the Stop Act that was passed in the legislators. And the Stop Act really was to address the over, over prescription of opiates, um, which included doctors. There's a registry in the state that doctors should be checking to make sure their patients don't have four or five doctors and are using six or seven pharmacies. I mean, I've seen that through the years. There's been some unintended consequence for people who need pain management, um, and that's a, that's a separate issue. And hopefully, as the pendulum starts to swing back to the middle a little bit, that will continue to be addressed so people's medical needs can be met. But there's no doubt that the overprescription op opiates has, has been a problem by history. Uh, the use of the analogs, the fentanyl, that, you know, that, that fentanyl's been added to all types of drugs at this point, and that's really a lot of the deaths at this point are attributed to the fentanyl use and the analogs, and so it, it's just gotten ugly. 
But at the end of the day, it, I want to echo what Kelly said. You know, uh, our big message is that treatment works. You know, recovery is available. And there's a lot of providers who are good actors who are doing the right things for the right reasons. And treatment works. And we would encourage for people to, to make calls to us. If we can't help, we have a list of people that we refer out to. You know, if, if there's not treatment in your area, uh, SAMHSA has a website. Uh, you can call uh, hospitals in your area. I mean, call 12-step helplines. Sometimes you can get some help from those folks. But not to give up and not to fall in the place where you don't, you know, when, you, when you're not sure what to do, start to ask around and find out who's available to help. And, and there is a solution, and that's really the bigger message, I think. That's an excellent summation. Listeners, our guest for this episode of ADA Live has been Mike Yao. He's the president and CEO of uh, Fellowship Hall, and along with him, Kelly Skaggs, the clinical director at Fellowship Hall Drug and Alcohol Recovery Center. As always, we want to thank you for joining us uh, for this episode. As a reminder, this and all other ADA Live episodes are available on our website, adalive.org. All episodes are archived in a variety of formats, uh, streamed audio, and accessible transcripts. You can also download um, episodes as podcasts. It's as easy as going to the podcast icon on your mobile device and searching for ADA Live. As a reminder, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit your question anytime online at adalive.org or contact your regional center at one 800 949 4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orazda with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. See you next episode. Steps, man. All these curves.